0: G'day, welcome back to part 3 of Rewind's Look Back 20 Years to the release of The Avalanche's scintillating debut album, Since I Left You. I'm Steve Bell. If you haven't listened to the first two episodes, we recommend you go back and check them out first before diving into this podcast as it will make a lot more sense in order. Okay, so we've reached a point where Since I Left You is coming out in Australia on 27 November 2000 on Steve Pav's fledgling modular label, UK label XL Recordings, whose offshoot, Rex Records, had put out the Undersea Community EP the previous year after label head Leo Silverman had been turned onto the Avalanches by the Trifecta Rock City 7-inch, are putting out the album in 2001. But even before this, the band themselves have been busy trying to work out how they're going to translate the gorgeous sonic tapestry that is Since I Left You to the stage. It's not just the fact that this musical mosaic is virtually impossible to replicate live. They've always used samples in their set... But at their heart, the Avalanches are still in the live realm, a six-piece party band who are conditioned to play instruments and jump around and have a lot of fun. Live members of the band, like DJ Dexter and Jimmy De La Cruz, are a huge part of the band's overall appeal, to the point that it's almost like two separate entities. Not by design, but just because they'd gone deep down this sampling rabbit hole in the studio. In October of 2000, the Avalanches embark on a sold-out tour of Australian capital cities, and they're about to see how well these two worlds can mesh. There's a lot riding on it too, because this run is a precursor to them playing Falls Festival on New Year's Eve, as well as a prominent spot on the National Big Day Out Tour in January 2001, as well as the inevitable overseas tour commitments. Founding member Tony De Blasi, usually found behind a keyboard or slapping bass on stage, remembers that things started off pretty well.
1: I think that was just still a hangover of the way that we... We did performers of raucous, you know, hip-hop kind of smashing instruments and swapping instruments and, um, like, that's all we knew how to do um, to play live. So we just kind of reverted to that even though the sound had had completely transformed. So, I mean, if we did it now, we would do it completely different. But back then we were still kids and thinking, well, th- this is what we know. Like, if we break legs on stage and we smash stuff and by the end of the show it's like shit's everywhere and someone's hurt and someone's bleeding you know that's just that that is just what we knew how to do and it was kind of fun it was it was and in a way it was just nerves I think that you know instead of just being able to stand there and be cool and be like, just <laughs> sc- like screaming and um attacking each other and it, it was just very high energy um that that was a carryover from the 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 early days of playing live and we just hadn't played live that much we we, it did the it did go from like zero to 100 pretty quickly so we didn't have that time to really mature i think as a live band you know to to how quickly the the music that matured that was being recorded
0: when tony mentions breaking legs on stage he's not joking poor frontman darren seltman had it happen twice the first time in brisbane during this october pre-album tour and Tony concedes that in this case, he was the unwitting culprit.
1: So he was, he was laying on the ground and I think just singing, and I had the bass. So he's kind of laying on his side. So with the, the two, two legs on top of each other. And I just kind of looked at him and just completely looked at it like a log falling, you know, timber, just fell completely straight and with my shoulder whacked the middle of his um, lower leg to which I just saw a grimace of pain like it was like okay we, we normally like hurt each other a little bit like the fun is over this is really really bad and and to his credit like he I think we had one more song left and he played drums using a broken leg oh for that last song, I think he was very, very ginger on the. It was the left, uh, left foot, so he's very ginger on the hi hat. <laughs> but um, straight after, he's like, oh, "I'm, I'm in pain," and I, like, I went to hospital with him that night, and you know, we sat in the, the waiting room for ages because you know, we'll the Brisbane, it was you know, one o'clock in the morning or something, kind of peak time for, for that stuff, and I just felt so terrible, and he was just like, "Look." don't worry about it, it's just, you know, something that happens, it's all good. Um, And I just remember him saying like, you know, if anyone was going to break it, I'm really proud that it was you that that broke it. And (laughs) I was just like, oh man, stop
2: doing this, you're being too nice about it, hit me or something, break my leg.
0: (laughs) Darren played out that tour on crutches, which by all accounts his bandmates took a liking to smashing during subsequent gigs to the point that one punner was hit in the head by a flying piece of crutch and threatened to sue, although in the end he settled for partying with the band. Did Darren learn his lesson? No. He was recovered by the time the band hit Europe in August, but during a show at the London Electric Ballroom, he got carried away and jumped from a 20-foot speaker stack. Tony's about to tell you it was a six-foot stack, but I've read numerous accounts saying that it was six metres and I choose to picture the really, really high version. This time... Breaking his other leg, here's Tony.
1: It was, it was. I'm not sure whether it was the same leg, and it was still weary from um, from my break. But it, but he he jumped off like a must have been a six foot bass amp to to like you know kick in at a kick in has just gone bang and smashed that. And I think that was quite that was maybe midway through the show. So he had to he again stayed on with the broken leg and played out the rest of the set. But, you know, I was happy that I wasn't responsible for that
0: one. The ramifications from that break were vast. The rest of that European tour, as well as entire scheduled Japanese and US tours, were forced to be transformed into DJ sets, as was their scheduled return to that year's Livid Festival in Brisbane. It wasn't all Darren getting hurt amidst the Avalanche's live carnage, though, There were plenty of cuts and bruises and earlier on that European run Jimmy De La Cruz got concussed after slipping on his own blood at the V Festival, as you do. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. In November 2000, they launched the album in Melbourne on a boat cruise through Port Phillip Bay on board the Victoria Star which featured mainly friends and label people although some UK press such as Style Bible The Face were brought out on an advanced junket and Linda beside us these days, MD at Mushroom Music Publishing vaguely recalls being aboard the floating party.
3: Yeah, again, wow, my memory struggles in, in twenty years ago. Um, but I remember getting on, yeah, a boat at Port Phillip Bay. I think we. Um, I was worried because I thought, oh my god, I can't get off. Um, but it was, <laughs> all, but it was awesome. I mean, it was just a bunch of friends, really. I mean, I know it was record label um, initiative, but it was really, it felt like just a bunch of friends all hanging out um, and listening to the record. So it was, was pretty incredible.
0: And it proved a wise move buttering up to the UK press because things were quickly hotting up over there. In March 2001, members of the Avalanches returned the favour and hit the UK for a three-week promo stint, including DJ sets at The Social and Fabric. And around this time... The Since I Left You title track was released as a single and debuted at number 16 on the UK charts. The next month they went even better when Since I Left You the album was released and debuted at number 8. The press were falling over themselves singing their praises. They were featured on the cover of Jockey Slut magazine with the byline, Talent Borrows, Genius Steals, which was quite mind-blowing for the band, who you'll remember made this album not expecting anyone to hear it, let alone care, as Robbie Chater reflects,
4: it was cool. I mean, um, I remember, you know, the Face magazine, which was like, uh, you know, I'd grown up reading from the UK. They flew out to Australia to do a story of us, and things like that were happening. And it was all a little bit, a little bit surreal. The Brits have a real love of pop culture, pop music. And I, I was a kid growing up in Australia, and I was always reading The NME and love it, loving that kind of trashy pop culture, love hate. Relationship that the Brits had with their music, and they were just so passionate about about their their music, you know. And um, I, I love that. And um, so it's it's not it's not surprising to me that they embraced this sort of um, um, the, the sort of pop culture anything goes side of since I left you. You know that that makes sense to me, and. I also remember lots of um, Brits saying, this is just what they imagined life on their beach in Australia sounded like, you know, like just a big beach party. And we were like kind of, well, we're from Melbourne and there's not really any (laughs) great beaches and that's probably why we had time to make a record like this. But, um, yeah, um, but for us it's funny because like we love like West Coast american you know music like the beach boys and crosby stills and stuff like that so for us it was like always dreaming of another place and it's funny that how um for people in england that they thought it sounded like australia
0: tony de also remembers being blown away by this rush of love emanating from the northern hemisphere and how it started opening doors to new life experiences of all persuasion
1: yeah it was cool it was it was really good um because i think at the time it was still at that time pre internet um so it got released in in australia and kind of did alright you know it was it was okay i think it, it I'm not sure. i think it got to like number 37 here and we're like wow it's, or maybe it got more i, I can't remember uh, but but it wasn't like this big thing um and then it just really took off in England, and I think like a few of the magazines like Jockey Slut and um, maybe NME at the time were like, you've got to listen to this. I think NME gave it a 10 out of 10 or, or something like that. And, you know, the Face magazine, which was huge back then, flew over a team to interview us. And we were like, oh, this is really interesting. And so it really took off in in England and got really big. It came out and it was like number eight, um, when the album came out eventually, like, which was April in 2001. And then I, I think from, you, you know, that was really cool and we were, we were like, amazing. And, and, you know, we went over and toured there and we realised, holy shit, we're, we're pretty big, like, that's, that's really cool. We'd always had a, a pretty decent crowd here and we'd sell out, but there's places like The Hunters Club and, you know, maybe The Corner and so So it was never huge or anything. And and I think once, we, once it kind of got big overseas, we came back here and, you know, won all the ARIAs, and, and we felt like there's still that situation in Australia where uh, you'd kind of have to make it overseas sometimes before you would get recognised here um, as making it. So um, yeah, it was good. It was fun. It was it was it was like wow, this is kind of really cool. Like going to the ARIAs and touring <laughs> overseas was was incredible. It was it was so much fun. i I'd never been overseas before. Oh wow. <laughs> I remember, like, when when we were, you know, because we we kind of got shopped around, not shopped around, but, like, at the start, all the record companies wanted to sign us, so we'd get taken to these beautiful restaurants. And I remember thinking, I've never been to a restaurant before. <laughs> and this is serious. I'd, like, my family, we'd go to a bistro or something like that if we went out, you know, <laughs> like a swagman thing where you just kind of rock up to a buffet, but that was about it. And we'd get taken to these nice restaurants, and I was like... This is this is living, and I'd just be like, wouldn't know half the food, but I'd I'd be like, what's the most expensive thing? Okay, I'm gonna to get to that. <laughs> so it was it was great. It was a real life, you know, really life changing in that way from from the way you know I'd been brought up.
0: Now this flood of interest meant that the European shows we discussed earlier were now hugely anticipated events, whether the headlining shows or the prime slots at massive festivals. But Tony remembers some people. Including some big names, being slightly bemused by the difference between the avalanche's chaotic, anything could happen, and probably will live show, and the relatively dulcet tones of since I left you.
1: Yeah, well, it was one of those things where we just didn't want to, kind of play the songs as they were, which is which is just something that that um that we kind of do like like so we tried to to change the songs and I, I think since I left you I was playing guitar to it and um, yeah it it took about 3 months to like i remember it was about 3 months in a rehearsal room to kind of get that show together and even the first two songs that that we played when we did do the festival scene our own shows in you know overseas were two songs that weren't even on since i left you so it was still that very punk aesthetic of like and they were so heavy. It was it was kind of batshit crazy how heavy. <laughs> the first two songs that no one knew. So everyone expected this. Since I left it's a beautiful kind of ethereal, you know, dancey, light um, record. And then, you know, everyone would want to come and see us. And then the first two songs were just almost smashing our equipment and just playing this heavy, heavy stuff. And people were like, what is going on? I remember we played V Festival and um, Kylie Minogue was on the same stage as us. And, you know, she must have heard of this fellow Aussie band that, that she probably listened to the record and was like, oh, this is really nice music. And I remember she came down and stood about two metres next to me side of stage and we ended up, you know, breaking into our first song, which was just this, bah! <laughs> Heavy as hell thing, and I think we'd got one and a half songs through. And I turned to look whether she was like what her reaction was, and she was gone. <laughs> so it was it, it was really weird. But but you know we did manage to th- those shows were fun, and we we managed to translate it eventually. Um, but we're still in that raw raucous stage where we wanted to surprise people and not not. You know, go out with you know, start with "Since I Left You," and everyone goes, "Yeah." We kind of <laughs> want to still challenge people and still have that. We still just have that punk aesthetic, there. or, or in, in us of like, uh, let's let's challenge people and scare them. Or you know,
0: it must have been surreal, like you were saying. You know, you were playing Punish Club and what have you, and then all of a sudden, not that long later, you're playing Glastonbury or V Fest, and that did you did you enjoy that seismic jump?
1: Um. Yeah, I did. I I think we all did, and from the very start, we loved playing to big crowds, like I'd I'd have this thing where sometimes we'd do a gig, like we just, you know, when you're young, you're starting, you're doing all types of weird things. I think we did a university gig for like 20 people were there, and most of our shows that we do ourselves, we'd sell out. It was really good. We had good vibe about us and good kind of hype and everything like that remember like if we had a, a, a small crowd i'd always say to the to the guys they'd be like all oh, right guys picture like, we're at west uh oh god wembley right now like I, i'd look out and in my mind i'd be looking out to wembley so that's how i'd view things and, and i'd say and i'm wembley we'll wembley. just laugh and go yeah and then, <laughs> so like when we when we got to the point where we're playing at a festival in like I can remember we were in a tent in, in Ireland and it was like 15,000 people in there. And it's like one of the best shows we've ever done because I think we'd really raise ourselves to that to that being in front of a crowd. Like to, to me, I'm more nervous in front of five people than I am in front of tens of thousands. I, I love that. There's an energy there and that really lifts you um lifts you to perform and, and just lifts your whole spirit and, and energy. And, and if you're playing to, like, 20 people who are talking to each other, that's that's kind of terrible to me.
0: Robbie, for his part, shrugs off the disparity between Since I Left You and the Avalanches on stage, accepting it as just the wonderful duality of his band.
4: I, I don't think we really overthought it. I think we just kept doing what we'd been doing forever in Melbourne, <laughs> which was, you know, just our usual... Shambolic show, and we would. I remember we, uh, we were booked to play these really big festivals in England, and we were still playing these songs that we'd been playing in the pubs in Melbourne, which weren't even on since I left you, but they just sounded cool live. And we just really just didn't have a, a good business or career sense to be like, We should play. I remember management really frustrated because they're like, You should be playing these songs that people love and know from this record, but we were just playing this crazy kind of noise music, and uh, I. It was, it was super fun, but in, on the other hand, it wasn't really representative of the Since I Left You record. And, um, you know, I think it's taken us a long, long time, almost until this tour that we're currently doing to really figure out how to do the songs justice live.
0: As these things tend to happen, people in Australia started paying more attention to the Avalanches once they started getting mad props overseas. And even some of their earliest allies were somewhat taken aback by this far-flung traction... As Tom Larnick-Jones, whose label Trifecta had released that first seven-inch, recalls.
5: I guess I was surprised, yeah, but I guess, I guess I always thought it was good, but I guess it didn't really, there weren't any peers of ours, I guess, um, who were successful overseas. You know, maybe this was around about the same time as, as Jet becoming successful, so maybe they were a year or two later. Um, so I think it was like, it was surprising in that way, um, Not surprising because it it was good music, but surprising because I I, I hadn't seen any other Australian acts kind of break through the way they had. And in a way that was kind of, you know, um, authentic and driven by the music um, and still, you know, independent as well, like, you know, on an independent label in the UK. yeah, so that that was that was a new thing as well. I thought, at least at least from my experience.
0: Yeah. Simon Reynolds, the respected UK music journalist, who was one of the early adopters of the avalanches abroad, and who'd spent most of his career between London and New York, remembers being quite surprised that since I left you, emanated from Melbourne rather than some more recognised dance hotspot.
6: I must admit Australia had not been on. I don't think on many people's maps as as, as a as a place. For for dance music. Uh, I mean, I guess we probably assumed people danced there. I think I knew that it was like a trance, some big trance scene in the north of Australia, and people would go, go there and have these parties in the desert or by the beach, but I didn't really know much dance music production coming out of Australia. And so yeah, it was, it was a bit of a a surprise. It probably added something of a little bit of mystique as well. You know, Uh, here's these people who blindsided the world with this record uh, they come from Australia the other side of the globe uh, how did they do it you know um, even you know learning there was this word op shops <laughs> for <laughs> where you would go and buy your used re- records your used vinyl was kind of part of this little exoticism really uh, but yeah we, we didn't know really anything about them you know I think it just, it just seemed to come fully formed I mean they had been around and been in other groups, I think, and have done things, but you know the record seemed to just come out of nowhere, uh, and I just remember everyone on the on the internet seemed to be talking about it on message boards, and and uh, uh, you know, and there was a big j- buzz amongst music journalists about it. You know, but it seemed to happen almost instantly.
0: But this overseas success didn't come without its legal pitfalls, as we briefly alluded to last episode. Spurred by the adulation of the UK press, import copies of Since I Left You started flooding into America, pricking the ears of record labels over there. After a brief bidding war, the band signed with Sire for the US and Canada. Now, Sire Records is mainly recognised for its rock beginnings, but by this time was home to acts like Aphex Twin, Pet Shop Boys, Morchiba and Orbital, making it a good fit, with the album eventually coming out there in November of 2001 but this raised new sample clearance issues as more people being aware of the album meant more people putting their hand up for a slice of the publishing pie.
4: There were a few samples here and there that had to get removed early on and then that pretty much became the standard version of the album. And then I think when it hit the States, because it kind of rippled around the world. So it was out in England a year later than here and then in America like two years after that or something. We had to change some samples on Frontier Psychiatrist and they got switched out uh, in America and replaced with some voice actors who kind of really didn't do it justice. Um, Even though we'd cleared that sample, something happened and then it became uncleared. Um, And then two years later we re-cleared it and got the original samples back on the record. So there are different versions floating around out there. I've kind of lost track,
0: but, Yeah. Was it a sad feeling when you had to unpick your own work for yeah. lawyers and stuff?
4: Yeah, it's really tough and it's still um, a nerve-wracking scenario to this day, like when you, you're finishing a record and you might have a key sample that, say, forms the title of your album and is thematically ties everything together and you're always kind of nervous of like, what if we can't use that sample? You know, it's like the whole project almost falls apart.
0: What was it like when it started taking off? you in a weird position where the better it did overseas, the more hot water you're potentially in.
4: <laughs> yeah, and actually that reminds me of um, I think um, Modular here had worked out a deal when they when they, they did a great job clearing all the samples and everybody got on board and I think Excel, their label in England, was helping out with that. But they naively still did a deal where um you know they paid x amount per sample but if the album ticked over a hundred thousand copies they would have to pay that same amount again every time it sold another hundred thousand copies and they thought well it's never going to get anywhere near that so let's just do this deal because we get everything cheaper initially um and it's a good way to get this this kids record out there in the world and people get to hear it and then, of course, it just kept selling and selling and selling. So every time it sold another hundred thousand, they had to pay out to all the original sample owners the same amount over and over again. And I, I just remember it was like they kind of wanted it to stop selling in the end because it was just costing so much money. And um, so it was, it was, I mean, you don't really, you can't really comprehend that when you're like, you know in your early 20s and the record selling that many copies and people all over the world are kind of um, embracing it. It was, it was a trip. Um, and it was pre-internet really as well. So, um, I, you know, it was you get a sense of it, but it's only been in the years since really when I travelled that you meet people all over the place who, who know the record. and
0: Yeah. Tony Espy, who mixed Since I Left You and both of the Avalanche's albums since, wasn't as surprised as others by the album's immediate traction simply because he'd been aware that he was involved in something groundbreaking from the outset?
7: Uh, I did. Yeah. More so than them, I think. Um, as I said, when I first heard Since I Left You, the song, I, that was it for me. That, that I'm like, this is a piece of art that is so profound that they, that they didn't really make it like that. It just happened like that. And, um, just the the feeling in it, and the the use of sounds, and the use of that main sample was was transcendent for me. I I I was like, even if this no one else ever heard, hears this, I've actually heard a piece of music. It's one of the best pieces of music that's ever been made, in my opinion. So I'm like, I, at the time, I, I I had that feeling, and, and um, I think they were less sure of it than I was. Um, and then when I heard. When we kind of got close on the Frontier, I was like, this is so crazy that this is people are going to lose their shit over this, man. They are re- this is there's nothing else like this. And sure enough, it's still one of their most popular tracks, you know. Um so uh so I yeah, I, I had a, a good feeling about it, but I still knew that it would be a major uh ask for people to 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 come onto this because it's 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 not, it's not an easy road at start, at the beginning, like, you know, people who are used to hearing much more straight kind of music. um, It was a pretty big ask for them to to get into this, really. But there's just something magic and special that came together at that time. And it was unplanned. And um, we just didn't know, but it it's still there. Like when you hear that now, that, that magic and that feeling, it just is, is, it never goes away sort of thing. And and it never sort of gets boring or like, um, you know, there's always something new for your brain in there. There's, it's, it's so stuffed with little bits that um, there's there's always something on every listen, you know? And so I, 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 as I said, I had a really good feeling about it, um, but I knew that it would be a big, a big deal if it actually got somewhere. You know, um, it just, I think there's uh, good timing as well for it. Um, and it was just post the big rave kind of days and all that sort of stuff. So I think if it had come out earlier and in the middle of that whole dance rave thing, it wouldn't have had the same air because I think people were looking for something new and, and to still come from that dance world, but, but be sort of genuinely new and fresh. So I think, you know, that's what made it actually successful. Um, and of course, you know, it took a long time to filter out, a really long time. Like it, it was, you know, some house DJs in England being given cassettes or CDs early on and, and starting to play it and getting reactions and things like that. And it took a long time to filter out, you know, compared to these days when it's so, it's like overnight almost, you know. Um, it's <laughs> um, It took a good year for it to really get, through the industry, you know what I mean? And, and for Pav at the time to, to, to turn people on with it because, you know, he was going to like A&R meetings and stuff like that with this crazy music that didn't, they were like, well, how are we going to sell this? You know? um, and he, he, had, he had the faith. So um, a lot, there was a lot to be said for his kind of um, support.
0: Back home, the industry was starting to take notice as well. With Frontier Psychiatrist released in the UK and debuting at number 18 on the singles chart, new single Radio was taken to radio in Australia. Since I Left You had already picked up six Australian Dance Music Awards, and now they're nominated for an incredible nine ARIA Awards, eventually winning four. Best New Artist Album, Best New Artist Single for Frontier Psychiatrist, Best Dance Act, plus Producer of the Year for Robbie and Darren in their Bobby Dazzler alter ego. They probably would have taken home more if Powderfinger weren't on their Odyssey No. 5 rampage, the Brizzy band saluting six times, including a number of categories where they were up against the Avalanches. Sadly, the Avalanches were supposed to play at the Aria's ceremony but had to pull out because of Darren's broken leg from London. A real shame because they often go off when they get to go on TV. Check out their performance on Recovery from back during the El Producto era on YouTube. It's amazing. So much smashed vinyl. But the band was still on hand to collect their awards. A strange turn of events for these young Melbourne upstarts as Tony De Blasi remembers.
1: It was really weird. It was, it, we were still like, I just remember like turning up at the RAs. We still just didn't have any idea about what we should be wearing. Like, you know, should we get dressed up? we we'll are just in out just... I was in, just in jeans and this crappy shirt and, like, I, I was in the hotel room before, like, the literally a couple of hours before the Irish were going go. I'm like, I'm still giving myself haircuts. <laughs> like, I didn't go to hairdressers or, or you know, you think about that now, like, someone's just going to cut. And so I just do it with, you know, you get the clippers and you put the, the guard on whatever, number four, so I was just, I'll just give it a little trim and as I'm trimming it, the guard fell off and I just shaved a massive chunk in my head. So I had this bald spot in the top of my head. So I had to wear a hat to just this (laughs) shitty, shitty baseball cap to the Arias and, like, I remember we had that band, do you remember Scandalous, that were like a pop, one of those pop, and they they were behind us and they were just dressed to the T, like fur coats and everything. (laughs) I just would be, like, taking my hat off. In front of them so they could see the ballpark trying to freak them out um but it was really weird it it was such a kind of you know surreal feel i remember it looked like there were articles in the herald sun because we were pretty crazy back then like oh you know we've got plans in place in, in case the avalanches go do something crazy, we're going to cut out the thing. And by the time we were there, we were just, like, so nervous. And we got up on stage and went, well, thank you. (laughs) Kind of the opposite to that, because we never experienced anything like that. It was a whole different part of the music industry that that we weren't weren't a part of or anything. We were still very much in the indie scene and all that. So that that was, you know, really eye-opening for us.
0: It's hard to recreate that innocent vibe, isn't it, like from before you're aware of all the machinations of it, the business? It is.
1: And I'm glad that, um, you know, we as a whole didn't really think about it early on. Like, because I, I feel like a lot of bands now would be very aware of it, just in the, in the nature of the way the whole industry's changed and it's become very, you know, it's got a couple of record companies that pretty much own everything. There was a lot of... Independent record labels, and like I said, that whole independent spirit, and you just kind of come out of, you know, Nirvana, and don't sell out, and that was still that was still a thing, and, um, you know, so so we did have that innocence of of not kind of caring and just wanting to have fun, and that that's that's what we wanted to do, and just we loved making music, and we loved having fun, and and that was it. And, you know, I'm glad that that we got to live that time because it's still one of the, the greatest, you know, uh, times of my life. And if we'd have been too caught up in, you know, who are we going to sign with and uh, is it going to be number one, is it going to do, it just would have been, the pressure was would have already been there and the pressure is there now and it's just, it's never going to go away because, you know, we're the avalanches, we're this thing, there's, you know, big business and record companies and all that kind of stuff. So I'm glad we got that experience. And, and like I said, it was one of the times in my life. It was so
0: much fun. Robbie also remembers being weirded out by the sudden industry attention. Yeah, it was
4: all surreal. And I was such a shy kid. Like I, was, I found all of that stuff really hard and I was really grateful to have, you know, a gang of guys around me to, that were like, you know, much more confident than I was and that was the lovely part of it um but yeah I've, i was just pretty shy and i found all that really difficult like i i remember sitting there thinking god i hope we don't win one because i really don't want to have to get up on stage." <laughs> <laughs> um and you know there would be things like you know that i'd be in melbourne and they're like robbie you've got to go to germany because there's the mtv europe awards are on and you've got to go and be there and accept this thing and i'd get off the plane over there completely jet-lagged and shell-shocked and have to be in this stadium and accept this award and I was such a shy kid it was all like it was all like
0: a bit much really yeah that would have been overwhelming for sure
4: yeah because like um you know I just made this record in my bedroom (laughs) and it was just like with these old junk store records and I like that's what I'm built for like as a person like I love that kind of um Detective work and that, and getting lost in music, but uh, um, it's taken me a long time to kind of grow into the other side of, of this, of this uh, industry and this job, and and be able to speak and like do an interview with you, like I am now. You know, it's like that. None of that came
0: naturally. One aspect of the "Since I Left You" story, which we haven't touched upon, is the music videos. There were two excellent clips: one for "Frontier Psychiatrist" and one for "Since I Left You," and these definitely helped the Avalanche's reach a new audience at the time as Linda Besitis remembers?
3: Um, Well, I think the videos had a massive impact as well. Uh, One thing that struck me was with Frontier Psychiatrist video. That accentuated the genius and the madness of all these individual moments combined into one incredible song. Um, It it was really incredible how they did that with the visuals. Um, it, It matched so well. And even with Since I Left You, um, you know, you're always kind of left wondering whether they perished, the miners perished down in the mine and that was their um, afterlife or, you know, whether they actually escaped.
0: My reading of that clip is that it's both. One miner got out and lived with regret while the other went to avalanches heaven. Since I Left You would win them the video of the year going at the MTV Europe Awards, which Robbie briefly referenced earlier while the Frontier Psychiatrist video scored the runner-up prize at the Soho Shorts Film Festival in the UK. Now, with the incredible success of Since I Left You having arrived seemingly out of the blue, after initial years of hard work, as we've heard, there's now a whole new level of awareness about the band and people all over the planet falling hard for The Avalanche's unique spin on sampling, and with this comes the brand-new burden of expectation. People want more music, many obviously oblivious to how much work goes into creating such a masterpiece. And while these people would eventually receive a fittingly beautiful, admittedly slightly different, second Avalanche's album in the form of Wildflower, they would have to wait an incredible 16 years for the privilege. A decade and a half of false starts, rumour and innuendo, a period during which they shared a number of members, including founding frontman and producer Darren Seltman, who drifted away having started a family. And Robbie admits that the runaway success of Since I Left You had brought with it a whole new level of pressure.
4: Yeah, there was. There was. Um, just from ourselves, I think. And it kind of built, like, I often wonder what would have happened if we'd followed up Since I Left You in 2003 or something like. Um, but we didn't. And so as the years went by, it, it seemed like the myth of Since I Left You just grew precisely because... It, was, it just stood alone and it had never been followed up, you know. Um, and also I had a lot to learn personally about my own creative process and um, and how I work. So I remember thinking after, since I left you, um, that was kind of easy. I remember thinking that to myself and I could, I could hear a million things I would have fixed up about it, especially in the second half of the record. And I remember thinking... I didn't even really try. So if I try really hard, I can make something like ten times better, because <laughs> that was just kind of easy. And <laughs> so it's such a naive, naive way to think about things, and a totally a total misunderstanding of my own creativity and the beauty of being in a in a in a state of flow. And um, it's taken me a long time to learn that um, effort has got nothing to do with it. Like yes, you have to put in the hours and the time, but you know, your the intellectual side of my brain and if I'm overthinking or overanalyzing something really isn't much good to me in the studio and really it's about working from the heart and just being in the moment and capturing a moment of how you're feeling in one sample. And um, the journey of making Wildflower was uh, a journey of learning that, you know, and, and the relationship between Tony and I was um, was a beautiful one because we would have to tell each other, listen, that thing you made in five minutes just has a certain magic and it's 10 times better than, than that thing you've just spent a month on that had all these concepts behind it or whatever, you know. So um, there was the creative journey and the creative pressure. And then there was from the outside, there was, um, you know, record company pressure as well. And like they were very understanding, but there was still this thing of like, where's the record? Where's the record? And over time, it just sort of built and built and built.
0: Tony De Blasi also admits that the instant and widespread reverence afforded Since I Left You became something of an albatross around the band's neck when it came time to follow it up.
1: I think when we first started doing it, we were quite, you know, the albat- it wasn't the albatross again, uh, uh, around our necks, but, uh, <clears throat> and we did try and do so many different, we were like, oh, let's try and write a whole new thing, So we, we always want to do something different, so we're like trying to write songs and, The Beach Boys things which were cool but it just wasn't quite us and it maybe took us five years to figure that out and then in those five years you know the whole scenes changed, and there's you know everything has become kind of this new rave thing and modular transformed and um and you know so we kind of just tried to get back into the sampling thing and as this is all happening like we just discussed since I left you is becoming this kind of big thing and, and people were calling the classic record and so then it was like oh shit you know <laughs> we're gonna follow it up with something good and you know we're quite ambitious and and you know perfectionists and and wanted something worthy to follow it up and we just didn't feel like we were there and then you know as the years went by the, the pressure just built and built and built um and, you know, I, I, there were honestly about three or four times I was like, we're, we're never going to put this record out. It's never going to come out. That's it. We've just spent, you know, our lives and gone into debt to, to you know, try and make it. And it wasn't an, until it's... And we did have so much music, so much music. And it, it just wasn't until the time that personally we kind of let go of a lot of bullshit in our minds and all the pressure and expectation that we were just able to sit with Wildflower and go it's just going to be what it is and it was almost getting back to the same thing of since i left you of get away from the expectation of of what we want it to be or how it's going to be perceived anything like that it just is what it is and that's it and if people like it they like it and if they don't they don't and it's it's so it's kind of like we came you know 360 yeah. where we just came around to that same attitude of making Since I Left You and we we're able to just go, okay, we'll put it together like this and we'll have this kind of little theme. And, and you know, from that moment it was done really quickly and it just made it so much easier to make We Will Always Love You as well. It was like, I don't know, I feel like I've said it before, We Will Always Love You just felt like a, a free hit in that, you know, Wildflower was like finishing a marathon and we'd done it and it doesn't matter what anyone said. We finished this marathon, and you can't take that away from us. And you know, it, it did well, and there were some great songs on there. And um, and for this one, we were like, "There's no pressure. <laughs> we can just and we can do what we want. And even if it, no one likes it, it's like that's okay because you know we finished Wildflower, and we almost died doing it, and it was horrible. <laughs> there were moments that were completely terrible, but we did it. We got through it. Like, can you believe it? We and you know we. When we were touring with Wildflower, we were like, we talked about this for 15 years, this tour, and look, we're doing it. That was the reward. Like, you know, it became so much more about what others thought and just our own personal journey of what it meant to us to to get it out and finish it and be playing overseas. And, and that was so much of, you know, oh, imagine one day we'll be out there touring in America. And it took 10 years to get to that point, but but we did it. So it was, it just very much freed us up to, to, to take a whole different approach with We'll Always Love You and, and just that joy and love and no albatross, no pressure and no weight and everything's just light. and um, Yeah, it, it's good.
0: Since I Left You peaked at number 21 on the Australian charts upon release, although it would rise to number 15 when reissued in 2017. And it also went to number eight in the UK and charted throughout Europe and Scandinavia. Now here the albums come and go, but the allure and mystique surrounding Since I Left You only seems to have gotten stronger with the passing of time. Respected 2010 book, The 100 Best Australian Albums, placed it at number 10. Juice Magazine ranked it at number 4 in their list of the best Australian albums of all time. And even US hip-hop icon Questlove, the legendary musician, producer, DJ, critic and author, consistently listed in his top ten albums of all time and recently claimed that it totally changed his approach to DJing. It's extremely highly regarded in the pantheon of Australian albums, something which still blows Tony De Blasi away.
1: It is. It's it's incredible. It's it's really, um, makes us really proud. And it was one of those things that we, yeah, we got nominated for Arias and, um, you know, did well in England and all that, but, but you know, People every year get nominated for Arias, and and you know we'll have a top ten record, and but that'll come and go, and you know five years later, no one really cares about that anymore. But but it was really interesting as as time went by since I left, you grew in stature and it got appreciated so much more by this country and and kind of just people around the world, and we get messages about you know just from ah uh, just. You know almost suicidal and this album got me through it and um just the way it's aged it has aged like a fine wine and and um it's it's a special record and it really is it's just one of those records that that you know maybe probably in 50 years people will still be talking about it and playing it and I think that's a really rare thing and, and we're really proud of that.
0: Tony Sb believes it's the album's timeless nature, something we've discussed at length already, which keeps allowing Since I Left You to be discovered by new generations.
7: It's immersive, you know, as soon as you put the needle down or hit play or whatever, it just, boom, you're into a, another world, you know, and, and, it, and you stay there, basically, even though the world changes through the whole record. You still are taken out of your lounge room or whatever and put into a different space, whereas mo- a lot of music doesn't do that because it, it's 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 not it doesn't have that atmosphere, you know what I mean? Whereas they create atmosphere straight away. It's just like when a movie when you hear a movie, watch a movie, there's all just little sort of atmosphere sounds happening, foley and everything all the time. So it's never just silent unless they're in a in a you know a room quiet room or whatever. But generally there's ambience all the time, and so that's what they've kind of done. It's like so you feel like you're in a film almost because there's that that constant background ambience is changing all the time too depending on what's happening but it just it just immediately takes you into a different space and keeps you there kind of think you know so it's and and it's great to hear um like teenagers now who hear it and they just they can't believe what they're hearing because they, again they've been brought up on pretty sort of straight pop music or or whatever Um, So they're going, wow, this is wild, this stuff, wild. People actually think of it as an Australian album as as opposed to an Australian hip-hop album or Australian Mm -hmm. dance album where it's just part of the the music sort of um, this aura now.
0: For Simon Reynolds, the mystique surrounding the band, possible in an age before the internet was king, also added to the album's already considerable charm.
6: I think you probably, if you looked hard, you might find a picture of the avalanches, but you know there was no pictures on the record, and there was no sense of of the, who are the human beings behind this project. You know, so it was kind of uh, interesting on that level, again kind of a bit like Daft Punk with their masks, where you know both, but most people didn't know who Daft Punk looked like, and same with the avalanches. it was like a, uh, an entity. You know, issued this strange perfect record, um, but we didn't know much about. We didn't we
0: didn't know anything about them, really, I don't think. For Linda us, it's decidedly personal attachments to Since I Left You, which refuse to fade and add to the longevity of its appeal.
3: I've worked in music for a long time, so I was working in music when I met Robbie and the rest of the Avalanches, um... But I think for me on a personal level, this album still captures, you know, one of the happiest times of my life. You know, it's it's such a joyous record. Um, My late husband, Dean Turner, who was the bass player and co-founder of um, Magic Dirt, absolutely obsessed over this album. He absolutely loved it. And uh, all the other members of Magic Dirt did as well. And Dean and I were living in St Kilda with our housemate when the album came out and it was a soundtrack to our lives. We thrashed the record to death. We played it everywhere. It was high rotation at home. It was in the car when we went to festivals, when we were driving to the beach. And then we had it on all formats as well. But, yeah, I, I think it was just such an essential record. We, we couldn't live without it. And on top of that, I think I, I, I loved witnessing Dean and Robbie's friendship. They were so cute together, you know, both softly spoken. They were very kind and gentle men, uh, but it was that kind of authentic and grounded um, parts of them that, you know, made them special. And I think that translates into their art as well.
0: It's no surprise at all that Dean loved it. That guy knew his way around great music. Now with Since I Left You having arrived with a bang and then just become more loved over time, the Avalanches themselves have made two more great records, but even then they changed things up and incorporated guest vocalists. You have to wonder what happened to pure plunder phonics. Why haven't more people attempted something like Since I Left You? It seems there are a number of contributing factors. Simon Reynolds believes that perhaps the avalanches set the bar too high artistically.
6: There are still people within hip hop, like the late Jay Diller, Madlib, who do really beautiful work with samples. And there are um, artists like people like us, who is sort of an experimental position, but you samples a lot from Vicky Bennett. She samples a lot from uh, pop records and, and does stuff that's really beautiful and funny as well. Um, but it's kind of like a minority strand. you know I think in terms of dance music, it's very hard to top what the avalanches did. you know they, that density of samples and the way they had so many things um, that they'd taken, but they somehow woven together in something that felt natural and not like overloaded or you know, uh, it was dense, but it wasn't like unpleasantly dense. it was like, just the right level of saturation of, of samples to sort of blow you away and kind of feel like you're kind of um, buzzing on all these wonderful magical bits they've taken from their sources. Um, it's very hard to take that any further, I think. And I, I um, So in a, in a weird way, it's not like you can see a lot of avalanche-like groups, really. Um, they kind of did this towering thing uh, and then they did, later records like that, but not many people have taken up the baton, I don't think.
0: Robbie reckons it's been more of a natural evolution away from micro-sampling. I
4: mean, for us, it's just how we express ourselves and all all we know how to do. I'm not sure if it was just a a technology-based thing and technology was changing um, and digital audio workstations and Pro Tools and stuff were just like um, everybody's switching over to them, so and leaving the old hardware samplers behind. I mean, that might be a reason, um, but music was changing a lot as well. And it's also like it's time-consuming. <laughs> you know, it's hard work. Um, and it's for me, sampling music. It's like it can sound bad too if it's like if it's not done really, 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 really well. So th- yeah, they're few and far between. the Beautiful, beautiful sample-based records.
0: Tony De Blasi believes no-one's gone down the Since I Left You path, mainly because it's really hard.
1: It is hard, It's and, and it is laborious. It's a big process of putting it together. Um, you know, we had, you know, Robbie was producing it all, but we had, like, four guys who were finding a bunch of samples and, and sending them. And, and So, so there's, there's a big kind of work rate process with it. Um, also, I just think people shit themselves thinking they're going to have to clear them all. <laughs> um, you know, that, that's a that's a huge thing. And, and as, as 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 sampling has gone along, and record companies and publishers are now seeing it as a form of income with royalties and everything like that, they're they're more aware of. of you know, I'm, I remember hearing a while ago there were actually people who are employed as sample spotters that work for the record companies or publishers that go around and try and find if there are any, you know, samples that are unclear that they can then take to them. So it, it's a lot more of a riskier business now to, to do that, um, which probably scares a lot of people us off, but, you know, not us.
0: Tony SB believes that no-one goes to the extremes of the Avalanche's debut because it takes a certain touch and skill that few possess.
7: It's a good question. Maybe people have, but they, it just hasn't... Sort of made it, or it hasn't been heard outside of its creator's small circle, or something. I don't know, but I certainly haven't heard anything like it. I've heard there's groups like the Go Team and and, the, and other groups who use sort of samples quite a lot, but it's always against a, a, a played or a program background. Whereas not, whereas whereas they actually base the whole song on the sample on the on the the hook that they find or whatever. Everything's sort of based on that. Um, so, which I think is a bit different to the other, other people who are using samples a lot. They, the samples are again like they're, they're sort of um, they're secondary to the main part of the of the song. Whereas with the avalanches, of course, it's the other way. It's 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 the songs are built around the samples. It's a difficult process, and just, it takes a long time to find the right samples to fit together. Um, and you know it can just take day like weeks of putting the te- putting the needle putting the needle, down, putting the needle down putting the needle down putting the needle down until something magic happens. Um, so I can only guess that it's 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 really hard to do it and to make it sound that good and that sort of um, I don't know that sort of out of the ordinary um, that maybe people have tried and it just didn't. It didn't work, or that. And the other thing, too, which really puts most people off is the cost of, of sample clearance. Mm-hmm. That's, I'd say, that's probably the number one reason that people don't do it to the extreme of the, the avalanches, um, because no one will pay for it. You know, I mean, some really big artists, you know, like, I don't know, Kendrick or people like that, if they want to use a sample, it's no problem, you know, because they're normally only clearing one or two samples. When you've got to clear like 500 samples for one song, <laughs> it's um, it's it's really really hard. You know, at one point they have a sample clearer person working for them in LA um, yeah. for Wildflower just to working full time just to clear the samples. So I think that's probably the number one reason why people don't do it. Um, but they're they clever though because there's a lot of samples that are unrecognizable and mm-hmm. they're so mashed into the mesh of 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 all the music that you can't hear what they are um and whereas there's other samples that are much clearer and more obvious especially now with shazam um it's (laughs) yeah the main the main samples in a song now people know straight away because they just shazam it
0: but for robbie all of these factors don't really carry much weight because the music he makes is a pure expression of himself as well as his close friends and bandmates that's that's
4: that's the lovely Thing about what we do and um, I think as I get older I realise that's why sample-based music can be a really true and pure expression of who you are because it's just like whatever you love is filtering through you and out into the world and we, we just love an incredibly uh, diverse amount of music and somehow still to this day we know if... Um, a new tune we're making really is an avalanche's tune or not. It just has a certain sound and a certain feeling. Um, and I don't even know what that is, but we know it when we have it. And it's really just us being ourselves. Um, so in some ways, I don't I don't know, like it's a, it's a much truer, truer expression of what's in my heart than if I was trying to play guitar and express it that way or something, you know. It's, it's
0: yeah, it's wonderful. Must be great still doing this with Tony who you've been mates with since school and that. It?
4: yeah it's amazing it's wonderful and um you share so much and even just on the weekend like we'd been through a really tough lockdown in Melbourne last year and you just get to go away together to Brisbane and to Byron and a few days away and it's like you, you, you go through all the ups and downs together and he's really just like I mean my family consider him part of the family he's really just like a brother um and yeah it's it's an incredible thing and in a lot of ways that's what the journey of the band has been it's like our friendship so yeah it's wonderful
0: awesome and you and Aaron obviously had a pretty great creative relationship around the since I left you era you know the whole Bobby Dazzler aspect of it too but just working together so closely
4: yeah that was that was wonderful it was like he was older than me and um like when we were playing live around the the early days, he was such a great frontman and had this so charismatic and such a funny guy, and so it was like it was this perfect um, match of like this shy kid who was like I was churning out a lot of music. Um, Darren had great music taste and uh, this confidence and charisma to front the live act, and it and it really had worked worked really well. And he and being a few years older too, like he would. Uh, turn me on to music like he would say you should check out this van dyke parks record you really love this and so i had all this like boundless enthusiasm and energy so i was the kid who was like up all night churning out hours and hours and hours of music and he would just sort of listen to it and steer me and and say oh you should listen to this and listen to this and and it was this it worked so well it was a wonderful
0: partnership now given we're discussing the 20-year anniversary of since i left you it would be remiss not to mention the new four LP reissue that's just come out, courtesy EMI Australia, featuring the full album in all its glory, as well as a treasure trove of new mixes from global friends and contemporaries. Robbie explains that it's another long-term venture finally ticked off the Avalanche's to-do list.
4: Yeah, it's been it's been heaps of fun, and actually, uh, Glenn from Modular. Um, and I started on this probably a decade ago. I think it might have even been planned as the tenth anniversary, <laughs> so it's been <laughs> so it's been a long time it's been a long time coming, but it's it's lovely actually and we're we're getting ready to perform the album um with the Adelaide Symphony Orchestra and so I've had to dive back through all the old uh, hard drives and try and find all the original recording stems and everything and it's been wonderful to go back and listen to it all. It's a good time for me because. We've just made a third album that feels really sort of creatively fulfilling and um, so it's nice to look back. It was hard to look back on, you know, previously when we hadn't followed it up. Yeah.
0: Nice awesome. one. you got some really pretty cool people to do
4: remixes as well? Yeah, I mean, it's wonderful to have like Prince Paul on, on there doing a remix because he's been such a hero of ours. Um, Doom's done a remix um, Leon Vinehall heaps of people who we love the Cornelius remix is amazing um, you know, we supported Stereo Lab as kids in Melbourne like forever ago and we've got a remix of theirs on this record so there's lots, lots of lovely moments like
0: that Tony De Blasi has a more bittersweet favourite remix on the anniversary reissue given the recent sad passing of hip-hop legend Daniel Dumale aka MF Doom
1: yeah, loving some of the remixes, and and you know, getting that MF Doom one on there, especially after his passing, is yeah. is so cool. It's like you know that that's never going to get an opportunity to to kind of get f- fresh material from him again. So so that one that feels great.
2: Ain't nothing but a thing, you know. What I'm saying come on through. Come on through. <laughs> Yo. May last <laughs> oh, am a to Just up in this room right here, boy. Watch this. Hey, don't worry, girl. Take your coat off. Let me get your shoes. Take a load off. May I offer you some white wine And may I say tonight you're looking mighty fine Yup, as usual
0: The Avalanches have moved on now from the Since I Left You saga Wildflower came out in 2017 and went to number one in Australia We Will Always Love You came out in 2020 and went to number four as well as winning them the prestigious Australian Music Prize but there's still time for some final thoughts on their stunning debut from these key players Tony SB who's now mixed all three avalanches albums says that since i left you remains a pivotal point in his own journey how do you look back on since i left you in the you know i just feel to everything
7: lucky really like privileged right place right time um had the right temperament um, which I think is why Robbie and Tony have kept working with me on the, the other two records, because they could work with anyone they want, really. So I think I just I just get I get them and I get what they're trying to do and I know what sort of sound that they like. And, um, and you know, we just became close as well. And so I've sort of been through the ups and downs as well with them and, and through health issues and things like that. So I think they just feel... Secure with me because I've got their back in a way, and, and uh, I can keep secrets and things, and you know I don't sort of blab blab to the media and or whatever. So um, <clears throat> you know, like on we will always love you. When Robbie said he sent me the demos and said, "I want to work with you again," I was like in tears, you know, because to hear those songs in their sort of nascent stage and then to be asked again, it was. It was mind blowing, because to me that, as I said, We Will Always Love You is the best record I ever worked on. Um, I think probably since I left you is more important in a lot of ways, um, but it's to me, my favorite one is the new one. Um, Brilliant. So, so I feel just looking back, it's just like I, I, I was amazed to work on Wildflower, which was you know, extremely difficult. Um, but, but I knew the music was so beautiful that it was worth going through um but that was that was in my, you know really very very hard um there were lots of lots of great moments and and, and times but but it was a it was a struggle you know it was, there was a lot of things happening at the time and and um and again I feel lucky for him being on that one too even though it was emotionally hard. Um it's you know I just feel privileged really and um it's it's kept it's you know I still use their, their ethos and their kind of way of approaching it on, and on or just about everything else I do, so it's stuck with me. There's lots of good stories around it, you know. But for me, it's uh, Robbie being healthy. That's that's for me. That's um, more important than music, yeah. um, and that's been one of the best things for me to come to see him in get health, get healthy, and then be better. So uh you know it that still is number one for me um, yeah. and uh everything else is second but you know it's now they're on a new another journey a new journey just touring this live beast and um hopefully now <laughs> they can start going to other places in the world um we'll see but uh um yeah like i'm just i'm just super happy for them and how this how you know the reissue of the record is getting attention, and it's kind of just driving home how much people really loved it. Because all the messages and stuff on Instagram are just, just amazing, just incredible. Like people are just so enamored with them, and I think because they they feel that it's it's so authentic. There's no kind of bullshit surrounding them, really. Um, it's and it's just it all comes from the right emotional place and. You know, I think that's what people hear with them, and and it's just it's just makes them stand out. You know, yeah, um, agree more, yeah. um, and just and you know when you get a new Avalanche's record, you you're really you're getting a lot. You know, you you're getting so much emotion and complex sort of feelings pushed into the music, and then you're getting like incredible artwork with the or they all have the big six or seven or eight gatefold sleeves with you know which a lot of people won't pay for anymore and and (laughs) and all that sort of stuff so that they want they want the full experience you know they want people to have the full experience you know when they put down their 60 dollars or whatever for the vinyl you know it's it's like the old days you you get it and you put it on and you sit down and you're you're all listening together and it's like really exciting and you let it unfold and um all that stuff so you know it never gets old that that sort of thing and and um i I seriously hope I'll be working on record number four. Since I left you it's had a um, had a massive impact on my life it really did it still does and you know and basically at any point if I ever have to um, be in competition with someone else for a mix or whatever and you just say since I left you and it's it's over so, <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's you know it's incredibly I'm incredibly privileged to be attached to it and. And it's, it's, it'll be special for the rest of my life, you know, and, and, and one of the most defining times of my life, really. So well, I can't predict, I can't tell you what would have happened if I hadn't done that. It's impossible to tell, of course, but it really did change everything. It changed everything.
0: Simon Reynolds ended his beautiful liner notes for the 20th anniversary reissue by calling Since I Left You simply a work of heart. And he still revels in the collection's inherent humanity a lot
6: of dance music at that time was trying to be sort of this dark futuristic cyberpunk aesthetic and uh you know we are making machine music and this is very much recognizably you know recognizably human emotions you know decipherable human emotions joy and and uh celebration and then sort of more pointed feelings and uh, Feelings of uh, rebirth, personal rebirth. I think is a kind of thematic uh, in the record, um, and you know, it's something you can use in your life. You can use it um, when you're down or when you need to sort of switch up your mood. You know, you, you can you can put that record on, and um, it's all relatable human stuff. You know, um, even though there's a lot of technology involved, um, and, and and kind of you know, as much science fiction technology. As was going into these very other sort of sci-fi cyberpunk records, um, the end result sounds like music, sounds like human beings. There's a lot of real human playing that they're sampling. Um, you know, people actually playing instrument, you know, instruments um, rather than programming or engineering sounds. And so it all has this sort of uh, human feel running through the whole thing.
0: For Tom lannick Jones. The Avalanche's love of music for music's sake is his main since I left you takeaway.
5: And I think that's always been the way with both, um, both um, Robbie and Tony. Um, you know, I feel like there's a certain uh, generosity with both of them when they make music, but also when they talk about music, you kind of can't help but feel like you've been welcomed in, into something. There's nothing exclusionary. It's about sharing joy and music and... Yeah, just a sense of generosity I've always felt from both of them. Even if you know, if they ask you you're playing something and they ask you what it is, it was always like with such enthusiasm and genuine interest.
0: Linda Besitis explains that the live magnetism she first experienced in the '90s and which so endeared the avalanches to her is still alive and well.
3: It was in Brunswick Heads um, a few weeks ago. And uh, I went down to the Beach Hotel with um, Danny Rogers and his wife Liz and the Avalanches were playing a DJ set and there was a line that was hundreds of metres trying to get in, a line full of people trying to get in and inside it was heaving, it was packed to the rafters. Um, But, you know, you just realise that um, it still has apart from the crowd, they still have that feel, that feel to be uh, close to them. You know, the crowd, you couldn't even distinguish where they were as DJs with their with their um, equipment and where the crowd were. It was, they were all, the crowd were all over them. And it was such a great feeling. I mean, even then, you know, you still want to be down the front. You still want to be immersed. <laughs> you still want to see what they're doing. and. Uh, you know, and I still, I, I was Shazamming still. I still want to Shazam try and work <laughs> out what they're using. <laughs> um, but, yeah, it is, it's pretty special.
0: And the band? Well, as you can tell by the conversations we've just been sharing, they look back on the Since I Left You story extremely fondly. Here's Tony.
1: Amazingly fondly, yeah. Well, I really do. I felt like it was, it was the most, free mentally from you know just the you know like we talked about the weight of, of record companies and expectations fans um, you know the avalanches is now a defined thing where it wasn't back then um yeah just just it was just free and fun and like you know, we're all just such good mates, and it was just like you know, making music with your mates and getting to play on live with them and um, doing all that stuff was incredible. But, yeah, it was—it was just such a fun time. Fun—that's what it was, and it still is fun now. But it's—it's it's a different level of fun. It's—it's, it's, you know, um, yeah, still loving it. Still, it's still a ball. But um, yeah, it was just different. It was like a youthful kind of naive fun about it now whereas now we're more grown up um and have to think about you know things in life that we weren't aware of or didn't care of back in the day
4: and here's Robbie yeah I do I do I do just because um it reminds me of my own personal journey it reminds me of um it was just a kind of a, a very special time you know there's the turn of a new millennium and um yeah, I remember it very fondly. And the music's so full of joy. It's like it's a it's a lovely, it's a lovely thing to have been part of.
0: So thanks for joining us on this delve into the history of Since I Left You, an album that's now 20 years old but still as timeless and mysterious and beautiful now as the day it was born into the world, same as it ever was. We'll leave you with the beautiful title track Since I Left You, the album's de facto mission statement. The song which made Tony Espy pull over his car upon first listen, and the song that pretty much encapsulates this fascinating first chapter of the Avalanche's ongoing adventure.
2: time now. Welcome to Faraday's.
0: So there you have it. Thanks so much again for joining us. We hope you had as much fun listening as we did putting it together, and a huge thanks to Robbie and Tony for their time and insight, as well as to Linda, Tony, Tom and Simon for being so generous with their time. We'd also love to thank Mariam from EMI for her great help pulling it together, and as always thanks to my engineer Zig, who did a killer job on this podcast with the music, as well as the producers Craig and Marsty and everyone else at the Handshake Agency. Keep your eyes and ears tuned because there's more rewinds about to drop. And if you get the chance, please rate and review Rewind if you enjoy it. It's a massive help. And I'll catch you real soon. Rewind with Steve Bell is a
5: podcast from the Handshake Agency Network. Produced by Craig Trewick and Andrew Marx. Recorded and engineered by Zig Parker. Theme music by Dollar Bar.